0: All right, let's try this again. Happy New Year, everyone. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, It's time for a strong start? (laughs) And turn to someone else next to you and say, I'm so glad I'm sitting next to you today. (laughs) Always good to feel the love. I can't tell you what an honor it is to be here today. Um, Back in the early 2000s, I guess we're calling them the aughts now. I can't bring myself to do that. Um, It was such a joy to be a field education intern here. And um, I have such fond memories of being mentored by Pastor Dave. Uh, He was one of the biggest reasons that I was a part of this church, because I loved his preaching. And it was largely through his guidance and through his example that I really felt called into parish ministry after seminary. I also have wonderful memories of events like this. Let's see if we can... Can you all see that? Is it too bright up front? We'll see how this works. Um, If you can't tell, that's Jenny and Lena and some others of us, um, and we did this dance routine for a fundraiser, and even though I was by far, thank you for the lighting, um, I don't know if you can see it very well, but I was by far not the strongest dancer in this team, but they humored me and let me help choreograph a South African dance, because obviously. Yeah, so I have great memories of that. I have great memories of birthday parties and baby showers and events in the city and all kinds of things that we did together. Um, I also will remember Pastor Dave giving me great advice one Sunday after um, an intern sermon I did, and he said, you know, it might be a good idea not to tell the congregation that you had a difficult time printing out your sermon notes this morning in the computer lab. I also loved those after-church lunches that you guys had. I don't know if they still have those now that it's Graceway and not Praise Presbyterian, but we used to have these wonderful lunches, and it's thanks to that that I still, to this day, insist on having this in my refrigerator, <laughs> for real, and all my friends are like, how did you get so into kimchi? Like I was into it before it was a thing among non-Koreans, and um, <laughs> Truly. So you all provided such a strong start to my life in ministry, and I am truly thankful. A strong start matters. Parents work hard to give their children a strong start in life. They research everything from the healthiest baby food to the best diapers to which preschool will give their kids an edge. And if you're starting a project, whether it's something in your home, or a fancy meal, or a new job, you know that how you start matters. We just began a brand new year and a brand new decade, as the worship leader mentioned, and there is no shortage of advertising that tells you there's something new you need to start out right, and you need it right now. Maybe it is a new weight loss program or a gym membership or a wardrobe or something that will give you a new year and a new you and a fresh start. Maybe you made resolutions this year. I know I did. Anyone else? Okay, show of hands if you're still keeping them five days in. Don't be shy. All right, good job. I see, I see a few little hands over there. Um, those of you who are in film and writing, anyone in those industries or for fun or creative work, you know that how you start a story matters. And so in this passage that Sarah read for us, we have the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is starting off the story, and he wants to make sure he hits the right note. It's not only the start of his gospel, but it's the start of Jesus' ministry. And if you're familiar with how, how much the first minute of a film matters, you know that how those cinematographers set up the scene is key in those first 30 to 60 seconds. What things do they zoom in on? What is the music? What are the objects? Who are the characters? Or the first chapter in a book is setting up the dynamic of the story. So this is the kind of eye that we bring to today's scripture text, and if you'll indulge me, I invite you to come with me along with your holy imagination and picture what it was like to be at that scene at the Jordan River that day. So we're in modern-day Palestine, and you can see the little Google red symbol there. That's where we are. And here's the Jordan River. Um, It's only about 90 feet long, and in some parts only 10 feet wide, a fairly calm river. And I picture if this were a movie, the camera would pan to this river. um, And we would see the ripples of gentle waves, the reflection of light on the water. And we would see in the distance. arms gesturing to the crowds, and we would see them listening in rapt attention. The camera zooms in, and we see that the crowd is composed of men and women, children and babies, old and young. Some have quizzical expressions on their face, but they are curious to hear what this man is saying. And as we get even closer... I picture the solo violin fading, and we hear the man's voice. He starts in softly, telling them his own story of living in the woods, wearing camel skins and eating locusts and wild honey. We can hear him telling the story of how it was that one of those days in the woods he heard a call from God, and in that call God told him, go and prepare the way. Because I am coming. John tells them that God has a call for them too. John tells them, God is telling you that it's not too late to turn around. He calls this repentance. And the sign of it, he says, is to come into the water to be washed and made clean. I imagine at that moment a tired man looking at his wife or a teenage girl looking up at her mother, both of them remembering the arguments they had that morning. And I picture the man in the water, whose name is John, imploring them, come, you can be free, you can be made new. And slowly, I wonder if an older man, unsteady on his cane, steps in the water, followed by maybe a pregnant woman and two children holding hands. Some look uncertain, others have tears in their eyes, and some maybe smile with longing. And one by one, the man in the river gently dunks each one, putting water over their heads and saying, I baptize you for the forgiveness of sins. Wash and be free. It is a fresh start, and this is the scripture that was read. And so it goes for half an hour or so, people stepping on slippery rocks and feeling sand between their feet, one by one, walking into the water. And then someone new arrives, a man that John seems to know well. He smiles with recognition and calls out, I'm here to get baptized. But John is uncertain. As he walks out of the water and embraces this man with a mid eastern greeting of a kiss, John says, Wait a minute, you? You're the one I've been announcing. You're the one who needs no forgiveness. Shaking his head, John says, No, Jesus, this baptism isn't for you. You don't need to start over. But I imagine, even though it's not in the text, Jesus saying, No. I don't need to start over, but it's time for me to start." What does the world tell you about who you are? What kind of starting over does the world demand? Start over and be successful this time. Start over and look prettier and younger and thinner. Start over and go have kids, or more kids, or start over and have your kids properly sleep trained. Start over and make something of yourself, we hear. There is plenty to be anxious about in the world, real problems that need addressing and real disasters that need relief. This week alone, we hear of crippling smoke and fires in Australia and the destruction. Just a few days ago, we heard about the missile strike that killed some of the leaders in Iran and rumors of retaliation. But I wonder if the greatest anxieties most of us face aren't in the world out there, but the world in here. The world of our own relationships, our own hearts, the things that keep us up at night, the job that isn't quite fulfilling, the bank account that seems shrinking, the kids that we worry about. I want to show you. This was from a Gallup poll that came out, um, I was about to say last year, two years ago now. And they polled Americans about their levels of stress, worry, and anger. And you can see that all three of these graphs are rising by 2018, um, up to 55% in the stressed category, 45% in the worry category, and 22% living with regular anger. That's a lot. Now, there's a little bit of bad news and good news coming. If you are young, you are most likely to be experiencing all three of these things, especially stress. Anybody 29 and younger confirm these statistics, perhaps? Um, But the good news is, once you get over 50, it all gets better. (laughs) Yes! So there's totally an upside to aging, you guys. I think it's good news for us that are getting closer to that number. Um, There's even a connection between how you feel about our current president and your level of stress and worry and anger, which seems a lot of power to give to your your worldly leader. Um, But I wonder, if you were among the crowd gathered at the Jordan River that day, what kind of fresh start would you be looking for? What kind of stress and worry and anger would you be looking to wash away in that river? So I picture the crowds turning to watch. John, the wild man, the baptizer, the prophet. Here's a beautiful ancient rendering of this. And I imagine him speaking in hushed tones to Jesus, explaining why he can't begin to do this baptism of his spiritual superior. And I picture the man from Nazareth, the son of the carpenter married to Mary. This man who at that time had not begun a ministry, and people may have been very unclear as to who he was. Some of them might have recalled rumors of a magical birth with angels and shepherds and a star and foreign astrologers. Others might recall that time when Jesus was 12 and he went missing during the Passover feast, and Mary was sick with worry because she couldn't find her son, only to discover later that he was holding court with the temple leaders and teaching the rabbis a few things. Who is this Jesus? The crowd wonders, and why doesn't John want to baptize him? Jesus slowly and confidently steps into the water, I imagine. And John does not understand what is happening, but he can no more deny Jesus' request than he can deny the urge of hunger for food or thirst for water. And so in that moment, he lowers his relative, his friend, and his Lord Jesus to that 45 degrees under the water and raises him back up. He says the same words over Jesus, those words of God's mercy that he has spoken over everyone else. And people are wondering, who is this Jesus? I wonder as you start a new year and a new decade of 2020, what it would be like to ask that question, who is this Jesus? Not just at a theological, philosophical level, but who is this Jesus for your life? And who is this Jesus for your church? And what difference does it make? I have a friend who grew up without any religion, who later began to practice Zen Buddhism and regularly go to meditations and retreats, and he decided to come and spend a few weeks at the Episcopal Benedictine Monastery, where I live right now as a temporary clergy in residence. And he came and spent time listening to people who were visiting, um, ministering to those who were sick there, helping with dishes and raking leaves. And one day he was talking to one of the brothers, who had this thick Kenyan accent. And this Kenyan monk said to my friend, have you ever thought about becoming a monk? And my friend said, oh, I'm not even Christian and the monk said, "Well, I don't know if that matters because you're very Christ-like." So my friend came downstairs to where my room is and he said, "Can you tell me what Christ-like means?" And I realized how many people still have never heard the story of who Jesus is. And I felt what a gift it was to be able to speak from my heart to my friend and talk about Jesus the healer and the teacher and the rabbi and the miracle worker. Jesus who always had time to bless the heads of children and to meet with tax collectors and Pharisees and prostitutes and widows. The Jesus who was willing not only to feed the masses and to do miracles with food, but who even compared his own body and blood to bread and wine. The Jesus who defended the powerless and spoke up on behalf of the poor and oppressed. I got to tell him about that Jesus and what it meant to be Christ-like. And before I could even finish the story, my friend began to cry. I've never seen him cry before. And I waited, and I asked, what's behind those tears? He said, I just never knew that there was a man like that. I never knew there was someone living the way I've always wanted to live. Who is the man? who appeared that day on the banks of the Jordan. In the midst of all of the world's anxieties and headlines and the worry and stress and anger that Americans live with every day, what would it be like if you found time in this new year to read one of the Gospels again? You could always start with Mark, the shortest one, and read it out loud with a friend. And maybe you could even find someone who's reading it for the first time with you. Back to the riverside where John is baptizing Jesus, something else happened for the first time. Some described it later as a parting of the clouds with a sunbeam that came and landed directly on Jesus' face. And others described a flock of birds with one that looked like a dove that alighted right on Jesus' head. And some couldn't even find the words to describe later what they experienced that day. They only felt it as a wind that came through, and instead of blowing cold air, it brought warmth inside of them. Somehow, the wind that was whipping their clothes and rippling the water also carried a lightness that felt like love. But whatever it was that happened that day in that text, one thing people agreed on later, and that was the voice— A voice that came from only God knows where, that was beyond any voice they had ever heard. A voice not entirely male, or female, or child. A voice not even completely singular, but almost like the song of a trio. What they all agreed on was what the voice said. Because the words that they heard were these, This is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. They never forgot it. What does it feel like to be the beloved? This has everything to do with a strong start that I pray you have in 2020. I'd like to suggest three things that I believe this text offers us because sermons should have three things. So if you're taking notes, these are the three things. Okay, a strong start for your heart, a strong start for your day, and a strong start for your people. So let's unpack these together. First, a strong start for your heart. If you ask the question that the crowds gathered at the Jordan were asking, who is this man? And you go to the Gospels looking for answers. You know that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. That only Jesus had this incredible anointing at his baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I firmly believe that the reason that Jesus chose to receive this sacrament of forgiveness, even though he didn't need it, and this sacrament of belonging and community, is because he also wanted to model what is true for us, that we are the beloved. And so a strong start for our heart begins with us not just being baptized, but hearing the voice that declares, you are God's daughter— You are God's son. You are the beloved. You are the one with whom he is well pleased. Turn to your neighbor if you'll indulge me one more time and say, Do you know how beloved you are? Doesn't that feel good just to hear, even if you feel a little silly saying it? It's so good to hear that spoken over you, isn't it? The late author and evangelist Brennan Manning tells the story of priest Edward Farrell, a priest from Detroit, who went to Ireland to go visit his uncle for his 80th birthday. And on the morning of his uncle's big day, they decided to get up early before dawn and to go walk along the Killarney River, or excuse me, Killarney Lake. And they wanted to take in the sunrise. And they're sitting there and they're watching the spectacular sun come up. And before Edward knows it, his uncle is running off, just running and skipping off with this beaming smile across his face. And so Father Edward goes and tries to catch up with him, and he says, Uncle Seamus, you seem so happy. And Uncle Seamus said, well, I am, lad. And his nephew said, do you want to tell me why? And the 80-year-old man, skipping with delight, said, because the Father of Jesus is so very fond of me. Something in that sunset reminded him of how much the Father smiles on him. And Brenning Manning continues, If the question were put to you, do you honestly believe that God likes you? Not just loves you because theologically he has to, but likes you? What would it feel like if you actually believed that the Father of Jesus is so very fond of you? How would it affect the way you could relax in your own body, the kind of compassion and tenderness you could have for yourself and for others to know the Father of Jesus is so very fond of you? In my 12 years of being a pastor and my four months of hiking the Appalachian Trail, I have heard hundreds and hundreds of people's stories— And one thing that always strikes me is that no matter how old or young or rich or successful or good-looking someone is, everyone I've met, when you scratch beneath the surface and they trust you with their story, you discover that they're also fighting a private battle. And there's so many people that you would never guess it from the outside. I worked in a congregation of mostly Wall Street bankers and hedge fund managers for the last 12 years and their families, and they had resources— But they were never inoculated or immune to suffering, to sickness, to insecurity, to fear for their children, to relational struggles. This is the human condition. I am convinced that most of us deep down are asking some form of the question, am I good enough, and am I lovable? I remember taking a group of our confirmation students at my church. Oh, and by the way, if you read one book this year, read this book by Henry. Now, in the life of the beloved, I'll come back to that in a minute. But we went to this ministry with our eighth grade confirmation students called the Father's Heart. Have any of you been there? It's just a really wonderful soup kitchen where they have a huge breakfast every Sunday, and I remember the director gathering all of us around to train the volunteers beforehand. And he read to us the prodigal son story. And then he took a $100 bill. And I'm sorry, I don't carry around $100 bills. So you'll have to pretend that this 10 is a $100 bill. And he crumpled it up, and he threw it on the ground. And then he waited for one of the teenagers to pick it up. And of course, one of them did. And the director said, well, this isn't really worth anything, is it? It's all crumpled now and dirty on the floor. And the kids insisted, oh, no, no, I'll take it. It's fine. It's fine. And as the director proceeded to uncrinkle it and unfold it, he said, everyone who walks through the door today is like this bill. They might look a little crumpled. They might look weary. They may look tired. They might seem dirty. They might seem wrecked by this world. But every one of them is worth more than a $1 million to God. And our job today, he said, is not to feed them charity or feel sorry for them. It's to let them know, with everything we do, welcome home. Your Father is not mad at you. I'll never forget that. A strong start for your heart is knowing that you are the beloved. But how do we claim this identity? And how do we live into this deep in our core? How do we unmask the lies that the world gives us and claim this belovedness? So that brings us to number two, a strong start for your day. Now, many of you grew up in church being told to have a quiet time, and for me, as I've gotten older, sometimes the idea of quiet time can feel sort of stale or complicated or burdensome. So I want to share with you just a few things that have been true for me. Um, On the other side of 40, with my own share of midlife crises, I have found this to be true. Keep it simple. Keep it tender. And most of mine involve the number five. So one thing I'm doing right now is I have a gratitude partner, and we start each day either texting or emailing each other five gratitudes for that day. That's it. But I am telling you, I now look for these throughout my day. I guarantee you I won't leave Graceway Church until I have one for my list, and I already have multiple. So the gratitudes helps, or five minutes of simply picturing God smiling on you and doing that ancient breath prayer, inhaling, Lord Jesus Christ, exhale, have mercy on me. Another one is five slow, deep breaths, and just picturing a heart of love. You don't even have to use words. One of my friends at the monastery, Brother Aidan, said that his superior told him, if you read Psalm 139 every day, it will change your life. And he told him to do that for a month. It's the psalm that begins, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I am lying down. You know everything I'm about to do. And so Brother Aiden memorized it, and he loved it so much that he does that every day now. A mentor of mine reminded me that to pray is to simply sit or stand in the way of a blessing. And that's how you can start your day with a strong start of knowing you are beloved. So give yourself a strong start for the heart, a strong start for the day. And finally, give yourself a strong start for others, for the people in your life. Are there any people that you wish you could have a do-over with? People where things have been said that you wish you could take back? Maybe coworkers where things have been strained and never quite cleared up? It could even be your spouse or the person you're dating or a parent or a child. I live in a monastery now, as I mentioned, and I recall one of the guests asking my friend Brother John, what's the hardest thing about being a monk? And I think he expected John to say, oh, you know, giving up my personal wealth, or um, a vow of celibacy, or having to live, you know, under obedience of the superior. But before Brother John could even answer, the savvy guest interrupted and said, wait, wait, let me guess, the hardest thing about being a monk— is the other monks. (laughs) And Brother John laughed, and he said, yes, that is true. (laughs) Because relationships can be hard, and community takes work, and families are fragile. But part of the beauty of receiving your blessing and knowing you are the beloved is that you start to see everyone else as beloved too. From that book I showed you a minute ago by Henry Nowen, He was a Catholic priest who lived the last years of his life in a residential community for people with severely special needs in Toronto. And he had been a really renowned scholar from Yale and Harvard and spoken all over these important institutions. But he felt it was very important for him in these final years to be working with people that didn't place his value in his intelligence, but where he could just go and love and be loved. And so, in that environment, one day one of the residents, Janet, came up and said, Father, Father, I want a blessing. And so he started giving her kind of a perfunctory Catholic blessing with the cross and, you know, reciting words. But I want to read to you what happened. He decided um, midway when she said, No, 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 she stopped him. I want a real blessing. I want a real blessing. So he brought Janet that night after dinner, and when all the other guests and residents were around and the workers, he said, Janet wants a special blessing. And she walked over to him and put her arms around him and rested her head on his chest. He put his robed arms around her and said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile your kindness to the people in your house and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are—a very special person deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. And before Father Nowen knew what was happening, One after another, all the residents wanted a special blessing. And then the people who worked there wanted a blessing, because we are all desperate for a blessing. Not just a compliment, not just a self-esteem boost, but for someone to see us for who we are and to see us in our shimmering, shining selves. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, he got a blessing. And it was that blessing that sustained him through the temptations and the trials and the praise and the condemnation and all the other voices that would come his way. When we think about how we can have a fresh start with other people, it begins with a look. It begins with how we see them. The late author Toni Morrison said, it is interesting to watch what happens when a child enters a room. Does your face light up? She says, When my children used to walk in the room when they were little, I looked at them to see if they had buckled their trousers or if their hair was combed or if their socks were up. You think your affection and your deep love is on display because you're caring for them. It's not. When they see you, they see the critical face. What's wrong now? They wonder. Let your face speak what is in your heart. When they walk in the room, my face says, I'm glad to see them. It's just as small as that, you see. Who are the people whose faces light up when you walk in the room? How can you make others feel that? A little blessing, a little look of kindness goes a long way. If you can start your conversations with other people offering a word of acknowledgement— noticing something special about them, offering a true smile, really seeing them like this, then you allow them to feel the truth of their belovedness. Imagine what that could do for your friendships and your family and your colleagues and strangers in your life. And imagine what it could do for our world if we practiced being agents of blessing. This very Sunday— The start of all Sundays in 2020, I urge you to make a strong start for your heart, a strong start for your day, and a strong start for your community, because how you start matters. And before Jesus ever did a thing, before any miracle, any healing, any teaching, it all started with him hearing the voice that he is the Beloved. Henry Nouwen says that life is a chance to live as a yes to our belovedness, not living as though we have to prove we are worthy of being loved. I pray that that may be so, not only for your new year in 2020, but long beyond that. Amen.